invite you to read with me from God's Word, 2 Kings chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 24, we're going to be looking at the entirety of uh, 624 through 720, one of the strangest chapter divisions in all of the Bible. I have no concept why they put a chapter division here, it's clearly all one story, uh, even going on in dialogue, but uh, very strange. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm going to read up until 7-9, right about there, uh, but we'll be looking at the whole story. Afterwards, Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, mustered his entire army and went up and besieged Samaria. So if you remember from last week, this is after a period of peace where the Syrians did not come into Israel Eventually, Ben-Hadad hardened his heart, and he went up and besieged Samaria. There was a great famine in Samaria as they besieged it, until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and the fourth part of a calf of dove's dung for five shekels of silver. People don't know if that was literally dove's dung or if that was sort of euphemistic for some other type of food, Kind of like we eat Chex Mix chocolate and powdered sugar and call it puppy chow, but it's not really that. I don't know. doesn't really matter. Th clearly, prices were very inflated. Now, as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him saying, Help, my lord, O king. And he said, If the Lord will not help you, how shall I help you? From the threshing floor? From the wine press? And the king asked her, what is your trouble? And she answered, this woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and we ate him. And on the next day, I said to her, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. When the king heard these words of the woman, he tore his clothes. And now he was passing by on the wall and the people looked and behold, he had sackcloth beneath his body, and he said, May God do so to me, uh, and more also, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. Now the king dispatched a man from his presence, but before the messenger arrived, Elisha said to the elders, Do you see how this murderer has sent to take off my head? Look, when the messenger comes, shut the door, hold it fast against him. Is not the sound of his master's feet behind him? And while he was still speaking with them, the messenger came down to him and said, This trouble is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? But Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, Tomorrow about this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the very gate of Samaria. Then the captain, on whose hand the king leaned, said to the man of God, If the Lord himself should make windows in heaven, could this thing be? But Elisha said, You shall see it with your own eyes, but you shall not eat of it. Now there were four men who were lepers at the entrance to the gate, and they said to one another, Why are we sitting here until we die? If we say, let us enter the city, the famine is in the city, we shall die there. 
And if we sit here, we die also. So come now, let us go over to the camp of the Syrians. If they spare our lives, we shall live. Uh, and if they kill us, we shall but die. So they arose at twilight to go to the camp of the Syrians. But when they came to the camp, to the edge of the camp of the Syrians, behold, there was no one there. For the Lord had made the armies of the Syrians hear the sound of chariots, of horses, the sound of a great army. So they said to one another, Behold, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Egypt to come against us. So they fled away in the twilight. And they abandoned their tents, their horses, their donkeys, leaving the camp as it was, and they fled for their lives. And when these lepers came to the edge of the camp, they went to a tent, and they ate and drank, and they carried off silver and gold and clothing, and they went and hid them, and they came back and entered another tent, carried off the things from it, and they went and hid them. And then they said to one another, we are not doing right. This is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come. Let us go and tell the king's household. So the story uh, carries out. They do indeed do that. Uh, the king is convinced it's a trap by the Syrians, but one of his officials, who's unnamed, says, go check it out. They go check it out, and all is as reported. The prophecy of Elisha comes true. Uh, there are prices that come down. There's food to eat again in plenty. And the official who doubted the Lord uh, sees it with his own eyes, but he is trampled by the people at the gate of Jerusalem or of Samaria, and he never gets to partake. Thus far in the reading of the word of God, thanks be to God. Father, as we come this morning, as we pray week after week, we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might behold wonderful things in this, your word. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. I couldn't find an acorn, but I trust that you've seen an acorn. It's hard to believe when you look at an acorn, but there is the potential in that acorn to split rock to enter the foundation of your house and do all kinds of damage. Uh, science writer Hope Jaron, she shares an interesting fact about plants and she sort of personifies it. She says, uh, no risk is more terrifying than that taken by the first root. A lucky root will eventually find water, but its first job is to anchor the plant. Once that first root is extended, uh, the plant will never again enjoy any hope of relocating, whether good or bad, to a place less cold, less dry, less dangerous. Indeed, it will face frost, drought, greedy jaws without any possibility of flight. Something to think about. But if the seed goes down and takes root in good soil, the results are powerful. A tree's roots can swell and split bedrock, move gallons of water daily uh, for years, much more efficiently than any pump that's ever been invented by man. 
If the uh, root takes root, then the plant becomes all but indestructible. Tear apart everything above ground, everything, and most plants can still grow back rebelliously uh, just from one intact root, more than once, more than twice, over and over and over again. As we've been walking through these stories of Elijah and Elisha, we have been consistently reminded of the power of the word of God. And this story is just replete with reminders that Elisha is the prophet of God who speaks the word of God. And this word has tremendous power. In fact, it's interesting. You know, this story is ostensibly about Elisha Uh, as the hero, but Elisha never even gets out of his chair in this story. Uh, So powerful is the word of God. He he doesn't even need to lift a finger, and and all sorts of things are happening uh, around him. So the question is, uh, if the root that is properly Uh, fastened that goes down into rich soil has so much power what are we rooted in are we rooted have the roots of our lives gone down into the potentiality that the word of God holds for it or have we found ourselves in uh, in other places you remember in Luke I'm sorry Matthew 13 Jesus tells the the parable of the sower. And, and it's the same idea that the sower sows the seed, but de- you know where that seed takes root is going to make all the difference in the world in terms of the impact that that seed has. So I want to walk through this story and just sort of observe uh, what it is that uh, the soil of the various characters of the soil uh, of the story, and how that carries forth into our life. And, and hopefully this will be kind of a, a place for you to stand where you can apply that word to your own hearts and lives and, and, and you know, just be open to what the Lord might say to you. So three sort of stopping points along the way. We're going to look at sackcloth, cynicism, and sharing the good news. So let's start with sackcloth because this is, the part of the story that is, is really hard to take. Uh, it, it is a desperate time in the land of Israel. Samaria, as you remember, is the capital of the northern tribes. Uh, the northern tribes don't have a great history after the divide from Solomon, uh, Rehoboam, Jeroboam. Jeroboam established idolatry in the land. Uh, There was sort of a syncretism. He was kind of worshiping Yahweh, but he wanted to do it in his own way, and he set up idols, and so they were sort of worshiping Yahweh through or along with these idols. And and, and this, of course, had disastrous consequences. Person after person, king after king, uh, got more extreme, leading Israel away. Uh, we are now with Jehoram, who's the son of Ahab. Jehoram, we said, is a little bit better than Ahab. He took down the Baals, uh, but he was still walking in the ways of his uh, great-grandfather, Jeroboam, uh, and he was worshiping these idols, even if he was aware of Yahweh. 
You remember when we saw him earlier, Elisha said, if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat standing next to you, I wouldn't even look at you, Jehoram. So abominable is your sin, so offensive before the Lord God is your syncretistic heart uh, that, uh, that I wouldn't even look at you. And here we see uh, the, the results of that. You know, we've, we've talked this morning uh, in the call to, to confession about abandoning the ways of the Lord and the desperate places that it brings us. I, I think sometimes we, we forget that. Uh, we, we think that we deserve all good things. We think that uh, even if we continually uh, raise our fist before the Lord, that, that God is still going to pour out his blessing on us. Um, but the reality is that, that God is just, and, and he has created the world to operate in a particular way. And if we operate outside of that, there are consequences. And, and God told Israel very clearly the same thing through his prophet Moses. And I, I say it specifically, his prophet Moses, because he's given them his word. And, and he said things to them like he says in Deuteronomy 28, uh, Leviticus chapter 26. Here, listen to what he says through Moses in Deuteronomy 26. Uh, because of the suffering that your enemy will inflict on you during siege, when you fail to obey my words, you will eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of the sons and the daughters the Lord has given you. Even the most gentle and sensitive among you will have no compassion for his own brother or the wife he loves or his surviving children. And he will not give to one of them any of the flesh of his children that he is eating. It will be all that he has left because of the suffering your enemy will inflict on you during the siege of your city. Even the most gentle and sensitive woman among you, so sensitive and gen gentle that she would not venture to touch the ground with the sole of her foot, will begrudge the husband that she loves and her own son and daughter, the afterbirth from her womb and the child she bears, for she intends to eat them secretly during the siege and in the distress that the enemy will inflict on your city. Isn't it amazing that the situation that we see in Samaria uh, follows out exactly, exactly, uh, in the way that the Lord had predicted. Can you imagine uh, the covenant community on the, uh, the east side of the Jordan River getting ready to go into the promised land, hearing Moses uh, lay out these blessings and curses from the covenant and say, you know, if you walk away from the Lord, if you refuse to listen to his word, you're going to eat your own children. They would have said, no, nah, that could never happen. That, that would absolutely never happen. And yet, 450 B.C., here we are. Uh, the situation has degenerated to such a degree uh, that there is this abomination in the land of Israel among God's covenant people. Reminds me a little bit, and we've talked about this before, Joseph Conrad, his a uh, little novella, The Heart of Darkness, as he talks about the, the journey down the Congo River 
uh, during the, the time of imperialism. Incidentally, uh, Belgium just of, uh, officially issued an apology uh, for their treatment of the Congolese during that period. But in it, you know, Mr. Kurtz, who had uh, gone there to bring uh, civilization and, and to, uh, to uh, educate the Congolese, uh, found himself uh, demanding essentially worship. And he found himself abusing this. And as he was being taken out of the Congo, uh, he, he's in this sort, sort of half-crazed situation where he's dying and he's reflecting on his life. And in a moment of absolute lucidity, he says, oh, the horror, the horror, because he recognized just how deep the depravity was in his own heart. And I think this is what this passage reminds us of, that when we walk away from God, when we, we go uh, away from the way that he has set, you have the broad path and you have the narrow path. The broad path leads to destruction. The narrow path is the way of life. And when we determine to go our own ways, uh, it, 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 is, it is clear what the human heart apart from God is responsible for and is capable of. Uh, it's hard to believe, hard to take reading these passages, uh, but it is, it, it is a grim reminder uh, of who we are apart from God. Now, to be clear, these are people who have set their hearts against God. Uh, and, and we see that, you know, we sort of move on from sackcloth and, and this, this terrible picture. I, I want to look at cynicism because there are three characters here who really should know better. But they, they have determined that they are going to do things in their own way, even though, as I said, they, they should know better. Uh, so yeah, the idea here, you see the king, he goes from sackcloth in one minute to demanding the head of Elisha the second. You know, so sackcloth to cynicism. But cynicism has lots of different faces. The first is Ben-Hadad. You know, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, uh, he should have recognized the power of Yahweh. He's come up against Yahweh. Uh, he's been defeated by Yahweh in the past. His, uh, his uh, you know, sort of secretary of state, Naaman, has been delivered by Yahweh. In chapter 6, uh, he has sent this crack troop of commandos uh, to take Elisha, but they've been captured, and then they were feasted in Samaria. I mean, Ben-Hadad had every opportunity to see the goodness of Yahweh, uh, but he hardens his heart. If you go back to that parable of the sower, uh, Ben-Hadad is the, is the path. It's the hard path. The, he is determined, despite evidence after evidence, despite grace after grace, he is determined not to let that seed take root and not to grow. And we certainly see people like this uh, over and over in our, in our culture. 
And, and maybe, the, maybe some of you can describe yourself as being that hardened path. You've seen the grace of God over and over and over again. You look out and you see the creation and you say, I know this just didn't happen by chance. I know there must be a creator. But for whatever reason, uh, you harden your heart against the Lord. Uh, and and, and the, the word, the root doesn't penetrate into the soil to bear that kind of fruit. That's one kind of cynicism. There's another kind of cynicism uh, that we see in the official. Uh, the official who's on whose arm the king leans here, he's not named. He's probably his secretary of state. And he's told uh, by Elisha, he hears the word of the prophecy that just wait. Tomorrow, all of this siege that you see, all of the hunger, all of the famine, everything that you see before you, it's going to completely turn around and uh, a, a sea of fine sh flour will be sold for a shekel and uh, all of these things. And he, he is so cynical. He says, even if Yahweh should open a, a window in heaven, could this thing be? I, I, he just absolutely sets his heart uh, against believing it. He's a person that should know. He is contrary to Ben-Hadad. Uh, Ben-Hadad grew up outside the church, outside of the covenant community, uh, and has hardened his heart. But this official is somebody who's been there. He's heard of Yahweh. He's heard the stories. He knew that God gave manna from heaven. I mean, God in his history has opened windows from heaven, manna, quail, all of these things. Uh, but he is incapable at this moment uh, of believing. He is like that seed that is sown on the rocky soil. Uh, the roots uh, have a chance, but, but they, they are too, it's too hard. It's too impenetrable. There's too much unbelief. Now, again, he ultimately proves himself to be contra to the word of God. So he is not a believer. Uh, but we can somewhat relate to this young man or this whatever age he is. Uh, we can somewhat relate to him, can't we? Because we, we know that sometimes it's just so unbelievable that God could actu actually intervene. I mean, some of us look out right now and we say, feel that, so much is falling apart in our world from coronavirus to cultural tensions. Uh, you know, we look at November and that election and we just think, how could God possibly, you know, even if he were to open up windows in heaven, he cannot work in the mess that we have created here in our country. But part of what we see here in this passage is that his arm is never too short. And he encourages us to put away the cynicism uh, that can so easily come into our heart uh, and to trust in his power. We'll get there in just a minute. The last sort of picture of cynicism that we have is Jehoram, the king of Samaria, the king of Israel. Uh, he, he starts off in sackcloth, uh, but there is a point in which, especially when these two women or this woman comes to him and says, Look at what has happened. You know, I've eaten my child, and uh, this woman now is hiding her child. Some people have suggested that the children were already dead 
uh, from the famine, and, and that was the result. That may be true. Either way, it's, it's just too difficult to really get our minds around uh, the desperateness of that situation and uh, the hardness of heart that exists with regards to that. But the king, you know, he, he has an opportunity to bring his people to the feet of God. But notice just how quick it turns. That, uh, though everything is there, like the form of, of religion is there. He's got the sackcloth on. He can actually go to repent. The heart of it is not there. Uh, the form is there, but the heart is absent. A- and he says, I am going to take care of Elisha. A- and Elisha, of course, speaks for the Lord. So he just very quickly turns and he blames the Lord for his problems. He should be looking at himself. He should be looking at the idolatry of his own heart. Uh, but he just gets angry. He gets defensive. And he says, I am going to blame the Lord for this thing. And I am going to take off the head of Elisha. Again, King Jehoram is not a believer. But even if you are walking with the Lord, I think we can sometimes see this tendency in our lives. These are the thorns, right? The seed that is sown and it grows. It's got the form. It begins to take shape some. But then it is it is choked out. And we turn on the Lord and we blame him for what is going on in our country. We blame him for a virus or a sickness or we blame him for the the choices that our kids make. We, We blame him for these things. But the invitation is to wait on him. The invitation is to repent. The invitation is to find the Lord, not in our weakness or not in our strength, not in our power. That's what the king says. You want me to get it to you from the wine press, from the threshing floor? He was looking to his own strength and his own power to solve the issue. But that's just not the way that God works. So let's move from sackcloth and cynicism to this idea of sharing the good news. I mean, the, the official says, even if God opened the windows in heaven, could he really do such a thing? And the answer comes back, absolutely yes. You know, God's arm is not too short, to use Old Testament language, to accomplish anything that he wants. I mean, he can make the most desperate, broken situation and, and turn it to good news in a second. I mean, we've already seen that. You remember when the Moabites in 2 Kings 3 uh, put themselves against the Israelites. uh, He made it water appear in the desert where there was none. He made that water then appear as blood and the Moabites fled. The Israelites never lifted a finger and God defeated them. The same thing is true here. Uh, As uh, the Syrians were encamped, They hear the sound of horses and chariots. They said, oh, no, it's the Hittites and the Egyptians that the Israelites have hired as mercenaries. And they've come out to get us. And they all fled, leaving everything in the camp. And and, and God does this. This, 
you know, just out of nothing. It's out of, out of thin air. He does indeed open the windows in heaven. And the principle that we are to see here is that God can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. He is not put off by a pandemic. He is not put off by cultural tensions. He's not put off by outright war against people, against people. There, there is nothing there is nothing that God cannot handle. He's not put off by your cancer, your diagnosis. He's not put off by that relational tension uh, between you and your spouse or within your family. God can work in that, a and he will. You know, for those that love him, he will work in that. Now, that doesn't always mean that he's going to fix the problem in the way that we want it to be fixed. I mean, sometimes he wants us to walk through the siege. You know, he wanted the Syrians to wake up in Samaria uh, to understand where they were because that's the place that we will find him because God's ways aren't our ways. The king of Israel was thinking about strength, but God demonstrates that he works in, in, in muted tones. He wants the unclean and the unnamed to get the glory, uh, even here in this story. So God can do whatever he wants, but notice who it is uh, that continue to point to this good news. It's the unclean and the unnamed. Particular here, we have the lepers. <laughs> We're seeing more and more about uh, what it means to be unclean, to be isolated, uh, we, we now are, are used to things like qu quarantining. We're used to things like, uh, like being set apart. That's the way the lepers lived in those days. You know, they had to walk around with red shirts on, unclean, unclean, call out so nobody would get close to them. And they, they couldn't uh, be carriers and pass this thing on to, to somebody else. But these unclean people, the marginalized, uh, they are desperate, and, and they have the most reason of anybody here in this story. They say, listen, we're going to die one way or another. If we stay here, we're going to die. Uh, if we go to the Syrians, we might die, but there is also a possibility that they will help us. Uh, so they go over to the Syrian camp, and lo and behold, everybody's gone. God has done this thing. And so they start putting away for retirement, you know, getting their food, uh, putting away the gold and silver, burying, bar, uh, burying it. But then they realize, like, we can't do this. This is good news. We have to go share this with all around. They find uh, a, a treasure, and they realize, like, this is the hope for God's people. We have to go share this news. You know, as I read this, I was thinking of another marginalized group of people, uh, people that were oftentimes the rascals of society. Uh, sometimes they were convicts. Uh, they were certainly, like I said, marginalized on the outskirts of society. You know who I'm talking about? Shepherds. The shepherds who were out watching their flocks by night and the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around these angels. And they said, you know, back in Bethlehem, you're going to find the greatest treasure. 
that has ever come to this earth, you are going to find the deliverance that a besieged and hungry people have been longing for. And these shepherds, you know, they, they go in, they said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and they found Mary, Joseph, and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made no, known uh, the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had seen as it had been told them. You know, this is a day of good news. That's what the, the lepers discovered. That's what the shepherds said. Because they recognized that God is a, is a God who despite the arrogance, the sin, and the hard-heartedness of his people, not to mention the world, continues to make a way. He continues to open windows in heaven. And just like in this Old Testament passage, the windows in heaven swept away the Syrians and opened up food, manna that they could feed on, so in our day, the windows in heaven opened up and the Son of God came uh, and became flesh in order that he could be obedient to the cross, in order that he could go and, and could satisfy the wrath of God, the just wrath of God. When we look at the situation of sackcloth and what led to that, the just wrath of God against our sin. And he could become the bread of life for hungry, besieged people like you and like me. Brothers and sisters, this is a day of good news. Have you discovered the feast that God has set for us by opening the windows in heaven? That is my prayer. You know, there is a fourth seed that is sown. It's the seed that uh, falls on good soil. And it bears fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. A and in this story, it's the unclean. It's an unnamed official who, who says to Jehoram when he's sure it's a trap of the Syrians. He said, well, you might as well go look. And Jehoram goes and he finds uh, that it's true. It's the unclean and the unnamed, people who are just like you or me. We don't hold positions of power. We may not be wealthy. We may not have a political say in what's going on in this world. But God has given to us the greatest treasure. And he has said, go out. This is a day of good news. Share it with all around you, with your neighbors, with your family. Uh, remind one another, preach the gospel to yourself, to others, all those. It is a day of good, good news. Praise be to him. As we get ready to come to the table, it is indeed a day of good news. Uh, let us uh, pray as we get ready to come to the table, and then let's sing as we prepare our hearts. Father, we are so grateful for the word that you have sown, for the potentiality that it has. Lord, when we think about an age.
out its roots, splitting rock and shooting a tree up into the heavens for years upon years upon years. Lord, uh, it's hard for us to believe that, that that is a picture of the power of your word. Elisha never even gets up out of his chair, but the word of God empowers the unclean and the unnamed to go and to share that good news. And Father, we've found the greatest treasure. Along with those shepherds, we, we found Jesus, the babe, lying in a manger. And we pray that our hearts would melt more and more uh, with uh, just the reality of who he is and what he's done on our behalf. Thank you for gathering us around this word. Prepare us now to come to your table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.